Hello, world. It's me, Dennis, and today, how appropriate. I get to have a conversation with Dr. James Crow. Hello, Dr. Crow. Good afternoon. And thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. On, uh, here we are on the 5th of April, 2020. Uh, the globe is going through a pandemic. Many of the things that you have been studying and working through with viruses and all. And so could you please tell me, where are you currently on the planet today? Well, I am standing in my office on the 11th floor of a medical research building in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, where I work at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. And I'm looking out over a beautiful spring day. Tell me what you and your team are working on. What is going on that we should that that we can know and and help me to wrap my mind as a non-scientist around what's going on and from your perspective what both we can can are learning and uh and what's going on from from you and your team's perspective. Yes, well, my laboratory uh, studies the human body's natural immune response to infections, mostly with viruses. And we've been doing this about 25 years. And uh, one thing we know, and, and many other people in the field of immunology and vaccines have established, is that uh, one of the most important parts of your immune system that responds to infection and protects you are called antibodies. So we right. have specialized in the study of antibodies and um, how they work, and we're trying to harness antibodies as a technology to use as a prevention or treatment. Amazing. And so how does that apply to what, when you look at what's going on in the world today, how do you wrap your mind around the COVID-19 and how it's, going on and please I ask you to push back on me if I if I either say something that is outside of your experience in the scientific realm push back and say no no that's not quite what I have and 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 help me with this please sure well right now there are no licensed therapies or treatments so what we're doing during the outbreak is trying to prevent Infection just with public health measures, so personal mm -hmm. protective equipment, masks, gloves, hand washing, also distancing or cohorting or staying in the house or working from home, all of that. So that's just a physical barrier uh, to avoid infection. Uh, so that's, that's mm -hmm. the principal thing that's going on, and that's what's going to overall end this current epidemic um, on a global scale. But then there are specific medical interventions that we want desperately and we want to deploy them. And there's basically three things that people can do for viruses. One, if we had a vaccine that we could give to people, it would prevent the infection. But vaccines, they typically take 20 years to develop. We're on a cycle right now where we're hoping within a year or a year and a half to have vaccines that are safe and effective. So those are being already tested but they're not going to be available mm -hmm. in the short term. The second thing we can do is uh, have drugs to treat people who are already infected. So we're looking at all the drugs we already have. Can we repurpose them? So there's things like remdesivir and chloroquine and 
various drugs that have already been developed for other reasons that seem to have activity in the lab, and doctors are trying to test and see whether these would be able to treat. And then there's a third class of intervention. So there's vaccines or antivirals that we've talked about. The third class would be harnessing the immune system to use antibodies. And mm -hmm. antibodies are what your body makes in response to infection. And one thing that's going on right now is people are harvesting plasma from people who have survived, and that plasma is going to be transferred to another person. The plasma has antibodies from the first person, and the idea is to try to transfer immunity into the recipient of the plasma. And so that's going to be tested right now because we have people who are immune, and we'll see if we can you know, make others immune, like first responders or emergency room people. Um, the problem with that is you have to keep finding people who have survived and they all have different experiences and levels of antibodies. So what we're trying to do is use the blood cells from survivors uh, and find individual blood cells. We use very uh, technical approaches to sort through millions of blood cells from the immune system of people who survived and find the very ones that make the antibodies in that person and capture them and uh, use them you know, to inform us as a recipe for how to make that antibody synthetically. And then we can give the more synthetic antibody that's manufactured in a factory to millions of people around the world to prevent. So the three categories are vaccines, drugs, and antibodies. And, and then there's two types of antibodies, the, the plasma you would get from another person or the more synthetic version, which is what our specialty is. And that's what we're really working on right now. How, when you say really working, how how do you maintain? How do your your people stay safe while they are maintaining themselves and working together and collaborating? Has that changed? Well, this has been very disruptive to us. Even as we are responding, uh, the whole outbreak has disrupted our routines and practice. Has been very challenging. So. I myself was uh, studying and working in Italy for a period, uh, and uh, really about two and a half weeks ago, I had to mm -hmm. leave Italy as the country shut down, and it was fairly uh, fairly difficult even to get out of the country. And then when I came back, I personally was quarantined because I had been in Italy, an epicenter of the outbreak. I had to stay in my house for two weeks, take my temperature, and so on. So I'm leading my team from my house, um, which was awkward. And then, for yeah. the most part, our institution sent most of our people home. So all of our graduate students were sent home by the university to work from home. And we decided – we have 50 people in our laboratory. We decided only the people working on the coronavirus solution – would be coming to work. So we pared down to about eight or 10 people who are cycling in. And even those people are splitting, you know, shifts during the day or uh, they're not overlapping and we're doing social distancing in the lab while we're working. So we don't infect each other. And uh, I personally have been in very little. And when I come in, I'm wearing a, a mask actually. So it's been very, very difficult for us to uh, operate under these circumstances. 
do you see any do you see any light at the end of this? Are you seeing any flattening in that's going to allow you to re, to resume and allow you to go full bore back into this, not even to mention the entire economy about what we're doing, but just from from your point of view? Well, I think if you look at the epidemiology, there are regions of the world and countries who have already bent the curve, and they've done it within two or three months of implementing mm-hmm. public health measures. So I feel confident that uh, that will happen in most places of the world, and, and you know, most people in the world are at home right now. So sure. uh, probably most places, after two or three months, the curve is going to bend. Now, whether whether it's safe to go out or not. I, I personally listen to the recommendations and I follow the national and regional and my city and my institution. I do, I do what the officials are deciding. I don't make up my own plans. Um, mm-hmm. So I think everybody should just follow uh, what's going on because smart people are thinking through this, but I do see that the curve will eventually go down everywhere in the world. Um, but the, there's a second concern once we get through this initial outbreak if you look at history of epidemics and pandemics uh, for instance the 1918 flu is thought to be potentially a model for what's going on now uh, because Mm -hmm. it also was a respiratory virus there was a wave in 1918 and then there was a second year 1919 when the virus um, had another round And, and so people like us who are trying to come up with prevention or therapy to some extent, we are trying to get ready in case there's a second wave because the first wave uh, will be principally managed by public health measures and drugs and vaccines are not going to be ready, you know, in the first few months. So the the vaccines, drugs, and antibodies really are going to be most pertinent by this fall or winter. And if there were a winter outbreak again, then we would be ready. So I think I think right now we just uh, we're going to interrupt it by the things we're already doing. Mm-hmm. Irrespective of what, and of course, then there are there are the economic issues to be able to see how are we going to, what is the country going to look like after this? Uh, what what are the ways that we're going to resume and resume uh, the business of business and to see how that is going to go? So so it's an extraordinary time. So. What I, what I would like to is there anything else that I haven't asked about about the COVID nineteen before we segue into your mission and why the miracle of the immune system that that just has consumed me since I've watched your TED talk uh, even Oof. deeper. But is there anything that I have not asked about that you feel like that we should be talking about? Well, you asked about. Um you know, resuming activities. And I, I think there's a discussion going on even this week that because we can measure antibodies in the blood of people who survived, this can be a marker of people who have already been infected. And our presumption mm-hmm. is that most people who've been infected would be relatively protected, you know, against exposure. And so those people probably could go back to work uh, safely and, uh, not not be at high risk of infection on re-exposure. So 
I think right now a lot of people are scrambling, can we deploy a second kind of test, which is not looking for the virus in your nose to see if you have it right now, but looking for mm-hmm. antibodies in your blood to see if you had it a month or two ago. And that, if we had that at, at national scale, then we could screen workers and, and probably let them resume activities even during the outbreak. So I think that's that's an exciting thought that, you know, it has to be validated. I'm not saying we can do that right now, but that's a national sure. discussion that might get us back earlier uh, early, earlier than with, without the test. So that's, that's an exciting uh, potential development. How do you, in this age of the Internet, because I was trying to think of, you know, back in 1918, if, if you thought of something or had some modality, you would have to send it out for testing. You'd have to get the mail to be able to go out, and all the challenges are. In 2020, how do you connect with fellow uh, immunologists, fellow uh, <clears throat> fellow uh, uh, physicians and researchers to say, hey, hey, I've got this, and let's try this, and let's – what does the network look like of people uh, who are doing the research uh, like you and your team at Vanderbilt? Well, we have an extraordinary uh, portfolio of tools we can use, and we, we, in some ways, are using them all. So our team is using a kind of a – well, we use Slack, basically, which is an app that's on computers and phones to instant message each other. Uh, people are mm-hmm. also texting on phones. If we want immediate, immediate attention, we're just using personal yes. texting. Um, we have uh, cloud services for document sharing that we're using, Box, Dropbox, various things like that, um, that are allowing us to move enormous amounts of information from one place to another. Uh, and then around the international community, uh, the the publishing industry is 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 really changing uh, right now. It, it used to be that you would send in an article and there'd be a six nine month process and eventually it got printed and mailed. And of course, most scientific journals are now online and they come out much faster. But there's a whole new movement uh, called preprint servers. Um, in our field, it would be bioarchive, and so it is considered allowable now to post your publication on BioArchive at the same time that you're submitting it for peer review. And so all of us are looking, you know, hour by hour, papers are being posted on the preprint server immediately, and we're not having to wait uh, for the whole peer review system. Now, that means we have to filter things a little more because the peer review system is very important for Absolutely. Reproducible. But um, having said that, knowing what people are doing in all the countries in the world uh, immediately has allowed us to move very, very quickly. And I, I, I think it's just extraordinary that um, we can see structures of the virus, we can see immune responses, clinical material, just so much stuff is immediately available now. Uh, in fact, th- this is actually a problem in some ways. So, uh, people will ask me locally in my institution or, or in some venue, hey, could you tell us everything about what's going on with coronavirus? I say, no, no, all I have time to do <laughs> is to keep up with the immune response stuff. If you want to know hand washing or something, I can't read that stuff because they're just overwhelming amount of information. So 
Exactly. Um, we're focusing in my own group just on a narrow area where we work, which is antibodies and structures and immune system. And even there, there's a there's immediate and uh, enormous amount of information. Uh, one of one of the things that so impressed me was when you were talking about the universe. The immunity is uh, a universe within you, and and the complexity yeah. and the beauty of it and the creative. I, I, I it you completely opened me up to an understanding, not an understanding, wrong word, to an appreciation of the immensity and the and the complexity and the and and really the the, the research that could be done here. How did what was your 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 turn into this into this uh, this universe to say yes this is mine to do? Well, I think this type of work appeals to me uh, for very long-standing reasons. So when I was a kid, uh, I was really obsessed with collecting things. So yeah, um, I had a rock and where collection. Where were you? Where were you? Let, let me interrupt you for a second. I, 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 where were yes. you and when were you a kid? Well, I was born in 61, and I grew up mm-hmm. in um, various places, uh, North Carolina, New Orleans, um, Pittsburgh. My, my father was a physician and actually was a physician in training, so we moved around fairly often as he was doing medical school and residency and fellowship and so on. Um, but I was outside playing in the creek usually, uh, <laughs> wherever we went. And uh, that was back when kids actually played outside. Um, sure. And, uh, you know, there was a TV, you had TV, but there were only three channels. And it just, it was not an electronic childhood, really. It was more of a playing outside. And I, um, I enjoyed collecting rocks. I had... Um, a um, a seashell collection because my family we lived in North Carolina periodically we go to the beach and my family gave me a little golden book which I still have at home uh, the little golden book of seashells and I used that book as a manual and I decided I wanted one of every one of those seashells in that book um, <laughs> and at the time I'd go to the beach looking for all those things I I didn't really pay attention I was in third grade that the fact that some of those only occurred in Asia or, you know, places to which I did not have access as a young child. But um, now, even as an adult, I have uh, revisited that. So periodically I will buy seashells that um, are exotic just to sort of fill out my uh, my personal collection. So in my office I have, yeah. I don't know, dozens of Murex shells. And it fascinates me that those – uh, those shells all have essentially the same form. They're they're a twisted yeah. uh, shape with an opening, but if you look at each one, they're very very distinct. And so that's what I got fascinated with: uh, biomorphic forms that are always the same but always different. And um, you know, so I, I just got into obsessive collecting. I had stamp collections, a U.S. collection, a world collection, Beautiful. and I wanted. Want, you know, the books have a place to put the stamp. I wanted to fill the entire book. And fill, you know, it's kind of an OCD trait to check every box or fill every stamp uh, position. So back to how that influences our work now. Your your body 
uh, has a the, the one organ that's in every place in your body is the immune system, uh, and it's yeah. carried by the blood. So your blood has red blood cells that carry oxygen, and white blood cells are the, the immune cells, and they go everywhere. And because of the volume of your blood, um, you have an extraordinary number of white blood cells that are the components of the immune system. And people don't realize this, but every microliter of your blood, which is a very small volume, has a million white blood cells in it. And mm. they're virtually all different. And they, they're looking around. They have the capability to recognize a different um, structure, each one of them. And so you have billions and billions of white blood cells in your body. And to, to some extent, they're all different. Um, and so I kind of wanted to collect all the white blood cells. That was, you know, that was the idea or all the antibodies. And, yeah. uh, so we've been doing some things with, uh, really sort of projects of folly. I would say we've been trying to sequence all the antibodies on the planet. So we'll take uh, a human being and, we'll put them on a machine um, and we'll filter out all the circulating white blood cells in their body at that time. It takes about four hours and we'll remove 40 billion white blood cells from a person and then just sequence the antibody genes till we don't see anything new. Like sequence every antibody in that person's body right now. We've done that in a number of people. And um, it's just kind of a basic um, exploration and sure. uh, the the other so how many would there be how how many in a human being how uh, how many would there be or just in a general range well the the estimates of what would be possible uh are something like 10 to the ninth it's just an extraordinary number but now that we've done <sighs> some of this work it's not that large uh people at least circulating in their blood, we see yeah. uh, probably about 30 to 50 million different specificities. So, you know, 30 to 50 million is small. It's like a thousand fold lower than we thought it could be, but it's still a big yeah. number. I mean, 50 million Absolutely. per person at one time point is, is large. Um, and each one of them is different in some way. Each one of those 50, 30 to 50 million is different in some way. Yes. Yeah. They all recognize different uh, structures. So it's, it's like a surveillance system and they're floating around your body looking for something that shouldn't be there. And each one has a, a, a role to play. Um, and, and I don't know if you, that just you like me, we, the, when I mentioned the TV, when I was a kid, one of my favorite yeah. shows was Jacques Cousteau, the under, undersea yeah. world of Jacques Cousteau. And so these guys would go oh, out yeah. on the boat and go diving and take pictures of the of what's underneath and just all the exotic stuff those guys would oh. see in the show. And um, that's what the experience is like for us. We see, oh, yeah, there's an antibody, an antibody. I've seen something like that before. But we'll stumble onto something that is a very bizarre shape or it's way too long. It's sort of like when they used to see albino fish at the bottom of a the ocean, yeah. you know, fish shouldn't be albino, but if you go to the right place or the right depth, you'll see them. So that's the kind of exploration that we're, we're doing. And, um, it's, it's very fun. And, um, it's just, yeah, it's, if you're curious about what is there and how many are there and 
you know, what do they look like? And lots of horses, but there's a zebra. The zebra looks very different from the horse. That that kind of um, biological variability is, is fascinating to me. And, um, so so let, let me ask you a question, Dr. Crow. What do you know now that you did not know a year ago? Or two years ago, how does the t- t- take me on to the learning processes besides discovering these different seahorses and and zebras and and stuff? Uh, what 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 is the the curve of of learning and uh, uh, that that is happening, or is it a curve, or is it just dots and 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 breakthroughs? How does it work? Well, one of the things that we didn't know two years ago was whether or not your immune system and our mine are completely different. Like you have a different collection mm-hmm. than I do, or do we yeah. have some things we share in common? And if we share something in common, that would be great because then we could design a vaccine that would target the common things and it would work in more people rather than if we're sort of off target and, and we have a vaccine that works for your immune system, but I don't have those elements Maybe that's why some of the vaccines don't work as well as we want them to. So it's just a question. Do people share features of the immune system, or are they all completely distinct? And what oh. we know now is uh, there is a substantial portion of sharing in the immune system, and we're starting to make catalogs of what are the common antibodies. And there's there's a whole other component, T cells, that we're sequencing that are similar. So people share a, a significant proportion of the repertoire of things in their body. So that we didn't know. I mean, we suspected it was true, but uh, now we're starting to make a catalog of these are the ones that people share. These are our common humanity in the immune system. So um, mm-hmm. that's going to give us tools that we can use for better biotechnology. Um, yeah. You were also talking about how factories so so we're talking about an, an ability to manufacture synthetic antibodies? Did I say that in the right, right. way? Yeah, that's exactly right. So um one of the one of the fun but challenging things about this work is if someone hands us blood, say they hand us two ounces of blood from someone who survived coronavirus, which we're, we're getting that kind of thing right now. Uh, it, there are millions of white blood cells, but only only some of them are for coronavirus. The rest are for other targets. And so what is the method for looking for the needle in the haystack in that, that pot of cells to trying to find the ones we yes. want? And so this involves a lot of um, engineering, molecular biology, microfluidics. So um, that's, uh, that's something that's challenging, but also one of the most rewarding things. So I, I, sometimes I sit in my office and I look around the room and there's uh, a computer programmer and a guy who likes to run robots and someone who clones teams and then somebody who's a protein expert. And what, what you, what you see is that not one, there's no one person who can do what's needed. But if each person is obsessively expert at their area and then they're willing to partner you know, in dignity and collaboration with other people and not say my thing is the only thing or my thing is the best thing, but say I have a role to play and you do too, when teams can coalesce like that, uh, then you can build these interdisciplinary 
collaborations, and, and that's what it, it has taken to sort through oh. to find the needle in the haystack. And we can now, on an instrument, I mean, we we have in the lab uh, right now a two million dollar instrument that's a flight microfluidic device with cameras in it, and we can see individual cells from a person's sample doing things to virus. And we say, that's the one I want. And using light, which is like tweezers, we grab the cell with light beams, and we move it into a tube, and we capture it, and then we get the genes out of one cell. And then you asked about manufacturing. The gene is like a recipe. It's the, it yeah. tells us the, the code to make that, uh, that antibody protein. So once we've captured the, um, the gene, it's amazing. We email the, the gene, basically. I mean, we transfer it in a state of way, but it's, it's equivalent of yeah. emailing some letters to um, a manufacturing site across the, the continent in, uh, in California, and we're directly connected to their machine. It's basically a DNA printer. It's kind of, you know, you could think of it like a, almost like a desktop printer, and we tell them, okay, we sent you a thousand, hit go, and they hit the button, and a thousand genes come out for our thousand antibodies, and they send them back to us, and we can use those synthetic DNAs to manufacture the antibodies at any scale we want. Um, and so the idea is ultimately these would end up in 10,000 liter bioreactors making kilograms of antibody that we could distribute for the world. And, and, and um, so that's how we do it. I mean, we, the, the key is to find one little cell, and, and this is back to the, the kind of the Jacques Cousteau experience. We've got to look sure. around, find the one we want, and then capture the gene, and that, that's the magic that then becomes, you know, yeah. enough to, to treat the world. Well, when 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 I did a uh, little bit of research about uh, James Hubble and why he became famous, he wasn't him, but it was his researcher who was who was looking over all those stars to be able to find one. Oh my God, there's a red shift there, and uh -huh. it was the researcher that did that. And that's the kind of thing that I hear you that that I hear that that you look for for somebody to be on your team. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we have amazing team members, and uh, I think one of the, the distinctive things about our team uh, that's working on the coronavirus, we, we do want to make antibodies for all of the major infections in the world, and we have a whole program huh? called Ahead 100 to get ready ahead of time. But sometimes you just don't see it coming, and the coronavirus that we're experiencing now is one of those. We knew a coronavirus likely would come. We just didn't know which one, and we didn't know the sequence ah. of it. So now we're surprised, and we have to scramble. And so most scientists who do this type of work don't like scrambling. I mean, they like to be methodical. They like to repeat their experiments. They don't like to tell yep. people what's going on until they're sure of it. Um, and that's good because a lot of science is very rigorous and reproducible, but, uh, in this kind of work, people want an antibody to give to, uh, human beings by this summer. And there's not time for that type of work. So we had to, uh, train right. ourselves to shift into a different mode. Um, and the people who excel in this, um, it's not so much, I mean, they are very, very gifted 
super intelligent people who already have a high level expertise in their field. I'm not saying that that doesn't exist, but the mindset is you do whatever you have to do to move forward. And uh, my experience has been um, my, well, my wife and I took a couple of classes in the evening at a local high school uh, trying to learn improv, which is not our, it's not our personality. We're pretty introverted. And, um, but just learning how do people even do improv. And when I look at my team out there doing a rapid response, that's basically what it is. It's scientific improv. So we hit an yeah. obstacle, and under conventional things, we'd say, we're stuck. We, we can't get it done. Uh, but uh, this team right now, and we, we've done this drill a couple times, we don't accept that. And, and you don't in improv either. You can't stop. Somebody you, you have to say yes, third line and you just – you just got to keep moving. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yes, and we hit an obstacle, and we're going exactly the yes end of improv. So I'll give you an example um, that happened this weekend, actually today. Uh, well, so we have antibodies. We need to get to a collaborator uh, who's in Missouri, Mike Diamond Lab, and they're very, very um, accomplished virologist. He's a major virologist, a very good friend of mine. So we need to get antibodies to test so he can confirm they have activity against the virus in a biosafety level three lab there. But um, yesterday was Saturday and today's Sunday. It's not trivial to ship things overnight um, on a Saturday night. I mean, it's just hard. (laughs) The economy is not set up to that. And so some people are saying, I guess we're stuck till next week. And, and yet our team, said, no, we don't accept that. We're going to get it there somehow. So we had three or four plans. One was one of us would drive to St. Louis four and a half hours away. Another was they would drive halfway, we would drive halfway, we'll meet at a truck stop and, and you know, drop it off. Uh, and another, eventually, we, we knew we could get FedEx to move the box, but they wouldn't deliver it. So it's like, well, what if we hire a private courier and then we call FedEx National and say we got to have this, and that ultimately that's what happened. Uh, we we you know stitched together FedEx as a commercial service, and then a you know private courier to take it the last mile. And then even there, we don't want to infect uh, the researchers receiving the materials. So we have a whole scheme of uh, drive by with a thing in your trunk, pop the trunk, and not get out of the car. <laughs> you know so. We're talking about we're doing biotechnology and science, but what it takes is this crazy stuff of, you know, you didn't expect that you would be hiring a private courier in another state, but that's that's what it took. And uh, so uh, this is not the usual science. It's, it's just a moment that, yeah. that demands a, a certain creativity and looseness that, um, that, that, that it's, just, it's just I have not experienced uh, – an openness to this degree with a, a team of people that are so sophisticated. And it's, it's fun. It's fun to work together in that way to overcome obstacles. What, what, I, what excites me about what you're saying is, is that w- because there are always lessons learned that we could not have learned had we not gone through something. Like, for example, the moonshot, the, the first, the Apollo mission that, that, that President Kennedy said uh, that we would be within the, by the end of the decade. That was about nine years away. And, he, and we did not have the technology 
Yet so many unintended things came from the effort. Yeah. So that's what I'm hearing you say is that you're actually finding new ways that could could end up expanding and increasing the muscles, the the creative collaborative muscles that we would not have done before had we not had to go through this. Absolutely. So the the technology that we've been developing, um, we, we first started putting all of it together because of a grant we got from the government. And the grant was from uh, DARPA, which is the the Department of Defense's advanced research funding um, arm. And they, they say things like our programs invented the internet and GPS and stealth technology and things like that. So what they do is they, they, um, they put out grant programs or grant calls, requests for applications for things that can't be done. They're sort of s- stupid ideas, like you can't do that. Sure. And, and yet sure. they have a substantial amount of money. <laughs> so yeah. we got a um, $28 million grant to develop and deploy technologies to take a blood sample and develop a treatment for a virus within 60 days. That was the idea. And um, when they put it out, everybody said, that's stupid. This stuff takes at least two or three years, even if you went really, really fast. And the conventional drug development, it's more like eight or ten years. So 60 days is, it's, you know, foolish. But um, we did a the, – the idea was it was going to be these fake sprints where we simulated a pandemic. So last year we did one, uh, and the, the target we used as a model was Zika, and we – we did a fake thing, and they you know, got a stopwatch, and they said, ready, go, mm-hmm. here's blood, and then we, we raced. And we were able to do it in 78 days. We got the whole thing finished, even through animal studies and monkey studies. We got it all done in 78 days, and we learned so much about <sighs> um, places we could go faster. If, if you start thinking about why does it take a day or, you know, why can't we do it in an hour, and what if we work two shifts during the day, and it just – it opened our mind to things we could do. And after that, my entire lab was watching this sort of elite group do the fast thing, and, and everybody else is doing, you know, our conventional workflow. And everybody said, I want to do that. I want to do it the fast way because it was not only fast, but it was a large scale, and we got, you know, extraordinary results. So we would have never, never even attempted or thought to go that fast. It just wouldn't even seem possible. But um, the challenge was there, and so it's just what you're saying. Well, you know, when I when I look at one of the things that you're giving me a reappreciation for, and I have to tell you, this is a reappreciation because I get it and I forget it. I get it and I forget it. Is for this miracle of life, this life. How does it happen? All of these things that are happening in the blood. All of these things, all the, the, the you know, each little cell. It's like it's like thinking about a photon that that it doesn't. It waits for you to look at it, or whether or not it's going to become a wave or a particle. What? Ha, I mean, <laughs> and, and 
and and what about those cell what what about those shells how does that be, the beautiful geometry and the and the golden mean or or any of the any of the, the geometry that comes out out of there from that quantum level to that beautiful shell how does that happen it's just it's just it takes my breath away when i get a chance to talk with a scientist like you and it helps me to reconnect with the miracle that 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 is just that life is and all of its complexities and varieties. Yeah, there's uh, enormous complexity and beauty in the human body. And a single cell is hard to comprehend. Even a cell is a little universe with so many parts and molecules in it. And there are individuals, um, it's not my work, but there, there's a whole movement called the Atlas of the Cell in which people are trying to make maps of what's going on inside individual cells from parts of the body. So my work is looking in the blood at millions or billions of cells, but those people are one layer down. Inside those cells, there's a whole other universe. Um, and you, you're probably familiar with the the Richard Feynman quote, there's plenty of room at the bottom. So he was talking about uh, imaging at the time, electron microscopes had just come out and he was a physicist and people were saying, wow, it's exactly. amazing. Now we've seen at the bottom using electrons. And he said, oh, no, 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 there's just plenty more room to go. So the, the, the deeper you go, the more, uh, or the smaller, really, the, the yeah. smaller field that you focus on, uh, the bigger and bigger things seem. Uh, and th- there is a a beauty and a symmetry um, to biological systems. Um, well, there, like in the seashells, that um, one of the reasons I like seashells particularly, even still, is that there's symmetry, but then there's asymmetry. And so the um, the resilience of the system is based on a reproducible stability of symmetrical systems. And yet um, you need a very broad ability to recognize foreign things. And so you need lots of different shapes. And so the minor asymmetries are how antibodies achieve um, their, their very wide specificity. So in, in that way, if you look at the structure of an antibody, they all kind of look the same. But when you really yeah. peer down to the individual amino acid components and even the little hydrogen bonds, they're very, very different. So you have to look very closely, um, and it's this this form that seems the same but is always different uh, is the inherent nature of biology, and it's the key to the resilience uh, of biological systems. And so you can perturb an ecosystem with an oil spill, but, you know, it's going to come back. It may take time. But yeah. um, ecosystems will restore themselves because they're self-healing. And the human body generally is like that. You have so many assaults um, on your body through your life. And, uh, you know, you, yourself, you've had illnesses or injuries. And of course. There may be a time where you're disrupted, but your body knows how to reset. And then as a human population, we're undergoing uh, a pandemic right now and hundreds of thousands mm-hmm. of people are going to die. No doubt. Very discouraging. And I'm, I'm not belittling that it's uh, no. it's an awful time in our modern history, but I feel confident 
knowing what human immune system can do that we're going to reset. We'll defeat it. Um, the human population will establish herd immunity and we will overcome this particular pandemic because of all the biological features I, you know, I just described. All right. Well, tell me in this, in this last bit that we're, we're talking about, where are we, give me a metaphor that I can understand uh, uh, like like a, a a frontier in in immunology and and in the work that you're doing, uh, are we at the early stages? Are we at middle stages? Or or or, or, or have we, in other words, I don't know how to ask the question, but how how would I know where we where you think we are? You mean with coronavirus or just with broad immunity? No. In general, broad in just in your field, in in the, in the field that you're of study that you're that that you're studying. I mean, I know that like in 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 the in the late 1800s, the physicists were saying, "Well, we have finished. That's it. Physics is done. It's the la- you know stop stop even thinking about it." And then comes Bohr and 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 uh, Einstein and and Schrodinger and all that, and they they completely blew that away. So now here we are in 2020 with the kinds of work you're doing. Are we at the early? Are are, are we at a at, at a stage of, of of great growth and insight? Are we at a at a middle stage where we're? Am I even asking a, a valid question? What I'm yeah, I see what you're saying. So, I mean, it's an extraordinary time in history where I do believe uh, the work that we're doing, for instance to make antibodies for all of the major infections of the world. If we could do that ahead of time, this would really change all of how we, how we manage infectious diseases. Uh, in fact, a lot of how we would do medicine because antibodies are also the basis for new cancer therapies. They're also being mm-hmm. used in immunotherapy. The Nobel prize was just given for immunotherapy for cancer using antibodies. So, we're in a renaissance of medicine because of the the revolution that's going on with the technologies that mm-hmm. we're applying with antibodies. But having said that, I feel very humble when you look at the history of uh, science and innovation. Uh, the Richard Nixon, when I was you know just barely born, uh, said you know they they were declaring the the victory over uh, infections basically and victory over cancer was the next uh, goal, and uh, yeah. that's because childhood vaccines, like the polio vaccine, had just yeah. interrupted polio epidemics, and it, it was incredibly exciting uh, to the country and to the world. So there was this sense, wow, we're pretty hot stuff. We just defeated polio, and now we have diphtheria and pertussis uh, and tetanus vaccines and measles and mumps and rubella. There was, You know, you just wave your hand and you were uh, conquering these diseases. So there was this hubris to think we've got infectious diseases licked, but uh, you know, now you just see it's not true. So for me to say, well, there's a renaissance of technologies. I think we've got this stuff uh, licked. I don't don't think that's true. I think um, (laughs) the the challenges are getting greater, you know, as our Mm -hmm. technology and preparedness gets greater. So, one of the things is people are moving around a lot more. Uh, there's more commerce. There's more movement of animals and birds and so on. So uh, in 1918, the virus had to get on a boat to move across a continent. 
now you have millions of people in the air every day. Um, so the, the movement of people and commerce and, and animals and birds is at a very high level and, you know, increasing. So I think, and, and also human populations are pushing into the forest where a lot of animals harbor viruses that would not normally be encountered by humans. Uh, so mm-hmm. this is one of the reasons you see like Democratic Republic of Congo uh, is always troubled with monkeypox or Ebola. So yeah. Ebola. Both of those are going on right now in in Congo uh, because there's a, a high exposure of individuals to uh, forest animals uh, and increasingly so with either development or in their case, sometimes war. But um, so I, I think the challenges are going to continue to come and, and we, we are learning principles and we'll be more prepared, but it, it's not over. I mean, there's a lot more work to be done. Amen to that. Well, is there anything else that I haven't asked about that's on your mind or your heart right now, Doctor, uh, in, in, in this last uh, little bit? Anything that, that's important to, to you right now? Well, I think the listeners should just uh, ponder what, what is their own uh, personal feeling about uh, health and then microbial threats. And I think there's so much existential angst about the threat either to our individual persons, our family, our colleagues, our friends, Mm -hmm. or even the world. If your mind goes to the world might get wiped out by this thing, um, that doesn't feel good. And I think we have to be honest with ourselves. We're worried about that and thinking about that. Uh, But at the same time, what I'm trying to communicate is those of us who are peering in, to the human body and the human immune system don't think that's going to happen. We don't, we don't foresee right. that uh, because of the, um, the diversity and the complexity and the amazing resilience of the human body and human population. So I, I think it's, it, it's good to acknowledge the feelings and the threats that we're facing, but at the same time, we should feel confident um, as a species that we're not going to be, annihilated in in this time and uh, so if if you can own that cautious optimism of the time beyond which is not but you know months or a year from where we are now um, I believe that allows you to work together and work out of an abundance mentality not a scarcity mentality so if you get scared you can say I want for me I want for my family but if you look forward and you say we're going to get through this. You can do it together. So I think facing the existential threat with confidence um, allows us, you know, to live a more generous life and connect to people better and you know, have a vision for the future together, which is very, very important in this time. Doctor, I could not have said it better. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm going to not only am I going to end on that, but I'm going to live it. And I'm going to say yes and and continue to work this way. Thank you for your time today, Doctor. And we look forward to getting a chance to talk with you at another time. Well, thank you for having me and thanks for folks for listening. You bet. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>